But this morning, I'm going to be speaking on a well-known passage uh, from Scripture. Uh, the script, uh, Scripture passage is from the story of David and Bathsheba, and I think I should have that up on screen. There we go. Um, it's a well-known one from the Old Testament book of uh, Samuel, 2 Samuel. Uh, you can have a look at that in your Bibles if you want to turn up. Most of the text will be on the screen, but 2 Samuel 11, if you're wanting to follow along on your Bibles there. Uh, pretty well-known story. Uh, I'm going to read through it in a minute. But basically, the plot synopsis is that David is hanging around on his roof one night, uh, as you do, and he spots the wife of one of his soldiers having a bath. Uh, he likes what he sees, sends for her, ends up getting her pregnant, uh, which isn't a good look. And so to cover it up, he ends up arranging for her husband to get killed in battle. Then he waits like a week before marrying her. So we see that lust leads to adultery, leads to murder. So you're probably expecting to get some good practical tips from this this morning, like, uh, I don't know, don't perv on your neighbor's wife when you should be at work. Uh, Don't cover up your sins with even worse ones. Uh, Or even stay off your roof because it probably won't end well. He is okay. Keep watching. Yeah, there we go. He moves. Now, that may all be excellent advice, but I think there's something deeper going on here. Something more than just a story warning us about the dangers of lust and adultery. Something that's actually more fundamental to how we interact with one another as fellow human beings. Something our culture is talking about a lot at the moment. So let's see if we can spot this as we read through the chapter. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, already we can see a problem, can't we? Right? It's spring. It's the time that kings would traditionally go off to war, and David's a king, Right? But instead of going off to war, he sends the rest of the army out instead. Chucks the sickie so he can spend some quality time on the couch, binging every episode of Better Kill Saul or whatever. The point is, he's not doing his job as a king. In fact, this opening verse is full of irony. If you know what's happened previously in the book of Samuel. Only a few years back, really, in Israel's history. Back when Israel decided that they wanted a king like all the other nations around them had. They wanted a human king, despite the fact that things had been going pretty well with God as their king. After all, quick recap, he'd rescued them from Egypt, he'd miraculously fed them in the desert, he'd fought all of their battles for them, and then brought them into the land he promised. Yet despite all of this, Israel wanted a king so that they could be like everyone else. All the cool nations have a king, we want one too. 1 Samuel chapter 8, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. So you get the irony with what David is doing in our story today. But here we have Israel's second king, the great King David. And what's he doing? Is he going out before them and fighting their battles? No, well, he's not quite in Hawaii on holiday, but he's staying at home making others do the very thing that Israel wanted their king to do. And more than that, God warned Israel that this would happen. Back when they asked for a king, he warned them what it was really going to be like. This is the warning he gave them. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. 
He'll take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he'll take for his own use. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. So in essence, God says, you want a king to fight for you? What you're going to end up with is one who exploits you. One who takes what you own and commandeers it for his own pleasure, simply because he can. Kind of ominous, isn't it? Let's get back to the story today and see how that plays out in the life of David. And as we read the story, I want you to look out for a word that gets repeated a lot. Right? So this will get you paying attention. What word is repeated? I'm going to ask you later. See if you spot it as we go. 2 Samuel 11, I'll read that verse again. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messages to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. Now, she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. That's the Bible's kind of tactful way of saying that she was likely ovulating at the time, so that what happens next isn't particularly surprising. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, his army commander, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah came, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. David, you wouldn't need to ask if you're out you know, doing your job, going out before the people and fighting their battles, that sort of thing. But David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And so Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. This is a bit like putting Uriah and Bathsheba up in the honeymoon suite and then sending room service with a bowl of strawberries and a bottle of champagne. Right? Let's make the baby plausibly his thinks David. But Uriah has other ideas. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and didn't go down to the house. And David was told, Uriah did not go home. And so he asked Uriah, haven't you just come back from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my lord's men, <clears throat> without you, are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Right? Uriah's devotion to the bro code kind of shames David, who's the one staying at home sleeping with someone else's wife. Uriah is the one who's been following the custom of keeping himself holy before battle. Uh, a bit like football coaches banning players from sex the night before a big game. And this is something that David himself used to do. We read about it back in 1 Samuel chapter 21. David said, Indeed, women have been kept from us as usual whenever I set out going into battle. The men's bodies are holy even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? Right, so you get what's happening? Uriah's doing the right thing by his men, 
David, not so much. And so David tries again, this time getting Uriah drunk. David said to him, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. And so Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat amongst his master's servants. He did not go home. David's getting desperate. And so this time he resorts to a more sinister cover-up. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. And in it he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is the fiercest, and then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's armies fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. And Joab sent David a full account of the battle. Verse 22. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. And the messenger said to David, The men overpowered us, and they came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. And David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this be evil in your sight. Right? Remember that phrase for later. Don't let this be evil in your sight. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. And say this to encourage Joab. So David's plan has worked. And he's off the hook. Uh, at least for now. But it also means he's free to pursue his desires. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David sent and had her brought to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Kind of ominous, isn't it? David tells Joab, don't let this be evil in your sight. But right at the end of the chapter, the narrator says what David has done was evil in the sight of God. Although the story appears from David's perspective to be over, this is not the last word on the matter from God's perspective. And we'll get to that soon. But did you notice the word that was repeated throughout the chapter? Yell it out if you did. Sent. Very good. Um, by the way, it is difficult to footnote in sermons, so I'll just say here that I owe this observation to my current scholarly man crush, Abraham Kuruvilla, uh, despite his preference for bow ties. But he points out that this word send or sent occurs a dozen times or more in this chapter. David sent the army out and remained behind. David sent someone to go find out Bathsheba's name. He sent someone to bring her to him. She sent word back that she was pregnant. So David sent Joab and sent Uriah back to Jerusalem. And then he sent him back to the battle and sent murderous instructions to Joab. And when the deed had been done, Joab sent back a report. So finally, David sent for Bathsheba to become his wife. You see what's going on here? This is the story of power corrupted. A king who sends and people obey. A king using his power for his own gain. A king, king abusing his power. Just like God warned back in 1 Samuel chapter 8. David's the king. He sends. And people bring him what he wants. 
He sends and people obey. He sends and since he's the king, he knows he can get away with it. Or so he thinks. Because we really only need to read the first few words of the next chapter to see how this is going to play out. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1, And the Lord sent. Who's really in charge of all of this? Who's the one who holds the true power in this story? It's not David. It's God. And God is about to send a message to David, his earthly deputy. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. God sends Nathan the prophet to confront David about what he's done. And how does he confront him? Well, Nathan doesn't talk directly to him about his sin. That's not the way you approach a king. Instead, Nathan approaches his adultery indirectly with a parable about sheep. Uh, Works in New Zealand, also worked in ancient Israel. He said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he'd bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who'd come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who'd come to him. Now, David hasn't quite spotted that this is a parable, and so he reacts accordingly. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. At which point Nathan reveals what the story is really about. You are the man, says Nathan. And he then goes on to God-splain how David has abused his power. He says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hands of Saul. I gave your master's house to you, your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. So why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his sight? And then we see that phrase again. God gave him all this power, and yet he used it to do evil in God's sight. So yes, this story involves sex. But it's more about the improper use of power, the exploitation of privilege. David used his position as king not for the benefit of others, but for his own pleasure. He saw what belonged to someone else, He took it for himself. He treated his fellow human beings, the people he was supposed to shepherd as king, he treated Bathsheba and Uriah as objects. Long before Weinstein and Spacey and Prince Andrew, God called out the abuse of power by the rich and important. God called even the king he appointed to account, confronted him with his sin and the consequences. And as we read on in chapter 12, it goes on to detail David's punishment in quite fitting terms. He says, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. Therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. You despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. So in your sight, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. You did it in secret. But I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. 
So God's clear message to David, and not just to David, but to all those who abuse the power with which they've entrusted, God's message is this. You might think it's been done in secret, but it's still been done in God's sight. There are still consequences. And God will use his power to bring justice. Now, sadly, the subsequent kings of Israel didn't heed the warnings, uh, nor did their priests, their leaders. This was going to be an ongoing problem for Israel. Bad shepherds, exploitative leaders. Uh, For centuries, nothing much changed. In fact, as we talked about last year, this shepherding metaphor pops up numerous times to critique Israel's leadership, most famously in Ezekiel chapter 34, where God says, Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? I mean, you eat the curds, you clothe yourself with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you don't take care of the flock. So God says he's going to remove the shepherds from their position of power uh, so that they can no longer exploit and abuse his people. And in his place, he says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he's with them, so I will look after my sheep. And how God says he'll do that is quite interesting. He says, I will place over them one shepherd my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. So you get this, despite David's failure, God is going to raise up a good shepherd from the line of David. That's what he means when he, my servant David. Obviously, David's long dead at this point. But someone from the line of David will be raised up to be this good shepherd. In fact, he would be a descendant of David's son, Solomon, who was born from his sinful marriage to Bathsheba. He would be the good shepherd, the one who will put an end to the abuse of power by the leaders of God's people. In John 10, Jesus famously says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. God doesn't just call out evil and abuse by those in leadership. I mean, as we've seen, anyone can do that. No, he also turns up himself and shows us how it should be done. As the Apostle Paul put it, although being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. That is, he didn't use his power to serve himself like David did, but rather making himself nothing, he took the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This then makes it especially evil when leaders among God's people use and abuse their power. I mean, that's just the opposite of the model that Jesus has left for us, right? In case you're unclear on that, just before the verses I read from Philippians, Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't use his power to his own advantage, but instead became a servant. Or as the Apostle Peter puts it when speaking to Christian leaders, he says, be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not 
lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Ours should be a community in which power isn't used the way we see King David using it in the story today. It shouldn't be used for our own pleasure, our own enrichment, our own sense of status. So firstly, don't be like David. Don't use what power you have for your own sexual pleasure to take what you want because you can. Treating other people as objects, whether that's power you might have at work or as a leader of young people or even within your marriage. Men, this should go without saying, but I'll say it anyway, that means not abusing women, not using our superior physical strength to control, to use women as objects to satisfy our desires. And that means not having to hashtag not all men every time, because we know it's not all men, but the fact is that some men and the rest of us men need to do what we can to pull them into line, just like Nathan did with David. It's bad enough when abuse happens out there in the world, but it's a disgrace when it happens among God's people in light of what God has done. Self-sacrifice, other-centeredness, that is the alternative model that Jesus lays down for all of us. And don't exploit your power in other ways. Don't use your leadership or privilege to make yourself feel important, to have others treat you with deference or honor, or to enjoy the feeling of influencing or controlling others. This is a temptation we all have to guard against, and I've seen some Christian leaders at times get a little bit carried away with it, where a person might come to them for help and advice, and so they give it, and they keep on giving it. They make the other person dependent on their wise advice, rather than helping that person develop their own scripture-informed wisdom. The leader finds joy in their own status as guru, rather than finding joy in watching the other person grow in Christ-like maturity. And normally, it doesn't end well for the relationship. So don't lord it over the flock in that way. God removed bad shepherds in the past, and he'll do so again. Just as he sent Nathan to confront David. God will act to end injustice. Because instead... We are to be people who use whatever power or privilege we might have to use it for others. And not in a patronizing way where we still get to decide what's to their benefit, but in a way that genuinely empowers others. If you want an example, think of the story uh, back in Acts chapter 6. I don't know if you remember that one, uh, where there was a problem in the church in Jerusalem. The problem was that the local Hebrew widows, the widows from the majority culture in the church, they were getting looked after while the widows from the Greek-speaking minority were getting left out. Injustice in the church. So what does the church do? They appoint a bunch of leaders, not from the majority, but from the Greek-speaking minority. They appoint them to take charge of the whole Looking After Widows program for the entire church. Those with power use that power to give up their power to empower the powerless. Complicated, I'll say it again. Those with power use their power to give up their power to empower the powerless. Because that's who we're called to be. Not just people who use our power to help others, although we do, but also to be people who give up our power for others when wisdom says that's the right course. Who give up the power maybe to keep things the way we like them. Give up the power to get what we want. 
if that truly characterized the way we treated one another, the church would get far less negative press. It would be the salt and light that God called us to be. If that truly characterized the way we went about our life in our families or in our workplaces, then people would notice the difference. Parents who exercise their God-given power lovingly and carefully, not using it to have their own needs met, but so that their children would grow in maturity and in responsibility and in Christ-likeness. As co-workers in offices, we would refuse to play the office power games, even if it meant missing out on promotions and salary increases. I've had the opportunity this year to try to put this into practice. Now, sure, I work for a Christian organization. It's easier. Sadly, not always a guarantee. But the college that I teach at has just merged with a smaller college over in Western Australia. Uh, now, if you're in that kind of game, mergers can be pretty ruthless endeavors, right? Uh, and we've pretty much got the power in the relationship, being the larger partner in it. And so we've been extra careful to take every little opportunity to choose to do things their way rather than simply insisting on ours. Uh, just to give one really tiny example, there's a person who oversees one small function in Perth that I'm responsible for in Sydney. Both of us think it's important, but I could see that he was particularly passionate about it. And so when we first met to talk about it, I surprised him a little by saying, hey, I'll, I want you to take the lead on this and set the direction for the merged college. Now, early days, but there's a surprising degree of harmony and cooperation. Our hope is that in doing this, we can somehow model how Jesus' followers will do things differently from the world around us. How even in, in a difficult kind of situation, we can use power for others, and indeed how we can give up power for others. So what are some of the ways, whether they be little ones like I've just explained, or maybe some big grand ones, that you could surprise others, surprise your family, surprise your friends, surprise your colleagues at work, by following Jesus' example and how you use your power? Or what are some of the areas in which you might need to repent in how you've used your power to serve yourself rather than to serve others? But importantly, the story of David's abuse of power doesn't end where we left it. Because David has the good sense to own up to his sin and repent. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. To which Nathan replies, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. Nathan proclaims God's forgiveness. Yes, there's still consequences, as we saw earlier. Uh, his kingdom and his household would never be the same again. Uh, the son born from that adulterous act would die. Half the kingdom would be taken from his descendants. But David was forgiven. He retained his place in God's plan. Uh, and the next child he had with Bathsheba was Solomon, the one who, as I said, one day Jesus would come. And this is where the gospel decisively parts ways with contemporary theories of power and identity. So listen carefully. Because when our world calls out exploitation and abuse of power, it's usually pretty judgment, judgmental and unforgiving. Right? Judgmental in that it's passing judgment on someone else, often quite deservedly, but still it's all about finger pointing at others. And it's also unforgiving in that once someone is called out, it seems to offer no way back. Now, sure, this story about David encourages us to call out exploitation and abuse wherever we see it, knowing that it's evil not just in our sight, but also in the sight of God. 
yet it encourages us to pass judgment first and foremost on ourselves before we start pointing the finger elsewhere. To start with God's people before worrying about the rest of the world. To start with me before I concern myself with you. And it also offers forgiveness, a way back. We don't have to remain cancelled. Yes, like David, there are still consequences for our sin. There's still pain involved in owning up to it. But our sin doesn't have to have the final word. Thanks to the good shepherd, the one who laid down his life for his sinful, corruptible, yet repentant sheep. Let me pray. Father, help us to be a community that uses the power that you have given us, uses the opportunities that you've given us for the good of others rather than for ourselves. Help us to truly embody a community that follows Jesus' model of laying down his life for the benefit of others, laying down his life for us. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.